Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. I am Nomiki Konst. It is August 25th, Wednesday, and you are watching the greatest leftist female-hosted, solely female-hosted show in leftist politics on YouTube because there are only a few. I'm kidding. Um, No, but seriously, thank you to everybody who tunes into the show. And at the top of the show, just want to remind you all to like and subscribe. This jam is hard work and all of your support and all of your patronage is what makes this show roll out every single week. All right. We have an incredible show today. Um, Just before we get to to my little opener, I'm going to run through. We have Ben Burgess, Vivek uh, Chibber, and Run Chowdhury is here. And we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff. We're going to be talking about the right wing and their flaws. And of course, uh, with Arun, we'll be talking about some foreign policy because that's his jam. And with Ben Burgess first, we are going to be discussing his latest piece in Jacobin, which is called Bipartisanship is Garbage. Why do we have to say that? Well, this week... There's a whole lot of bipartisan BS that's being thrown around. But I do want to talk about something that's a little bit more complicated. And I think it's gotten more complicated as the political spectrum has shifted. And frankly, and most importantly, as the left has grown, grown as a movement and grown in power. The left has become so powerful in the United States that whether or not it directly influenced Joe Biden's role um, and his interest in, in pulling out of Afghanistan or not, it is something that at least is perceived as a win for the left in that Joe Biden has made a decision to pull out troops in Afghanistan, which we've covered on the show for the last few weeks. But where does that lead us as a left? We've been in Afghanistan. The United States uh, has been in Afghanistan for over 20 years. In those 20 years, China uh, has set up operations to invest in infrastructure. They've um, put in a ton of money to do so, and they have arguably been using U.S. troops to create stability. Uh, I think that can be stated. Um, It is without... I'm not saying that it's right, but I think it can be stated that there has been at least a form of stability. Now, I think the question here isn't so much... Should we have gone into Afghanistan or not? I think we can all agree, at least on the left, we should have never gone into Afghanistan, just like we should have never gone into Iraq. I think we can all agree that America, the United States, is an empire. I think we can all agree that China and Russia are attempting and are forms of empires and are doing whatever they can in their interest to prevent us from going as an empire, whether it's uh, short-term goals, uh, meddling in elections, not that we don't do that either, we have to make that very clear, or long-term financial interests or, or jujitsu politics, China using U.S.'s military power to make sure that their financial interests are preserved in Afghanistan. What Biden's goal was, or many goals, um, we may not know for many years. I have my own suspicions. I think that uh, pulling out af- out of Afghanistan was a way to force China into showing their cards and that they would have to put their troops there to preserve whatever perceived you know stability there was. Um, and I think that China didn't 
nudge, didn't move. They, they knew that at the end of the day, Biden was still going to send back a few thousand troops to preserve whatever perceived stability there was to prevent the Taliban uh, from creating chaos. And, and, you know, and then there's this whole topic about the Taliban. Is the Taliban the Taliban of the early 2000s or of the 1990s? Great question. The Taliban absolutely did talk with the administration and the prior administration behind the scenes and uh, behind closed doors and in the Oval Office about taking back control and about U.S. pulling back. Did the Taliban play the United States? Don't know. Did the United States play the Taliban? Don't know. Did the Taliban actually secretly go and talk to China? Don't know. We don't know these things. But we do know is that uh, there are other... ISIS and the Taliban do not have a copacetic relationship. And perhaps there is a move there to prevent ISIS from, from, from coming into Afghanistan, not that they had a, a space there, or other places, keeping the Al-Qaeda network, which is a top-down network, unlike ISIS, in control to prevent radicalization in more fluid you know, networks um, like ISIS, where they choose just to, to, to fight in certain parts of the world. Uh, to gain access to oils, so they can fund their, you know, their activities. Um, having Al Qaeda in place might play a role in Syria, where I actually spoke to someone who's from Syria the other day, uh, who's from Damascus, and specifically talked about how he does not believe that the war is uh, is is fully in operations anymore. That it was that his family has been safe the last you know few months, but um, ISIS does not have the control that it did prior. Is this Biden playing a multidimensional foreign policy game? Now, simultaneously, the neocons and echoing the neocons are the neoliberal NGO folks fearful of what happens when the Taliban is put back in power. Is Taliban leadership going to be able to keep their folks under control? We saw footage on the streets of of some Taliban fighters, um, you know, challenging women reporters, and then their leaders saying, no, 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 they do have uh, the approval to report. So is it going to go as well as Biden may have predicted? Are these fighters going to be listening to their leaders who have these deals? Um, but simultaneously, you have the far right and the neocons and the NGO establishment world um, and centrist reporters saying there's going to be a humanitarian crisis in, uh, in Afghanistan. The people of Afghanistan are fearful because they've been conditioned by the Taliban of the past, which might be the Taliban of the, of the current. We don't know yet. Um, we don't know how long this, this, this ceasefire is going to be taking place. Is it a forever ceasefire or is it a temporary ceasefire? But we do know that people were running to get on planes and to, to, to leave. So what, is, what does this mean for the left? What is our foreign policy? We are, for the most part, anti-imperialist anti-interventionists for the most part. But the question isn't what we were in the past. We are not deciding whether or not to get into Afghanistan. We now have to decide, especially as we gain more power, especially as we gain seats in Congress, especially as we gain seats in the Senate, about what happens when we do pull out. What happens post-Afghanistan? We are an island in the middle of the ocean, but for the most part, the Americas are, but but we don't operate you know, we, we are affected by everybody around us. And our role in the world does have an impact on other world powers and other alliances. Whether that's the right move or not, 
is a great conversation to have. But what we do with it as the left is another conversation. Do we completely withdraw? Do we stay out of global politics? I think one thing most of us can agree on is that refugees should be allowed to come to the U.S. But saying that they're refugees is essentially admitting that the people of Afghanistan do not have the ability to live a free life. And so the question, you know, I've heard this come up many conversations is, well, they, the people of Afghanistan, Afghans, should be able to decide what kind of government they want. They should be able to have self-determination. But that is based on a premise that there is stability and peace and the ability to conduct democratic elections, which is rewind what the neoliberal NGO establishment world has been trying to do with their democracy assistance. So how do we, as the left, not slowly evolve into exactly what the neoliberals created? You have NGOs all over the world that claim to be human rights organizations, to be spreading democracy, be teaching women and children, financially empowering communities. Some of them are semi-successful for the short term. Some of them have had major success, but most of them have been ginormous institutions that have provided networks of people and foundations, tax breaks, and contractors a ton of money usually foreign contractors, Western contractors who are making more money than those on the ground, way more money. So I think that we on the left have to have a real serious moment to think about what it will mean when we do take power. What does the world look like? What does American foreign policy look like other than we don't want to go into war? We don't want to intervene. We don't want to invade. Because even in the U.S., we have so many different opinions. You know, the, the neocons are, are looking to make money and ravage and ruin the planet. Neoliberals are looking to make money, but are a little mixed about their, their way of intervening and when they intervene. Oh, we'll pull out here. We don't want to put boots on the ground here, but we do want to start, push, push troops here. So. Where do we stand? If we were, say, three years from now to gain the presidency, or we elected five more progressive senators and we moved a few more, or perhaps we uh, elected 25 more members of the squad, what would our foreign policy look like? What do we want to do once we take power? Once we pull out of Afghanistan, what does our foreign policy look like? And it's not just not invading. It's not just, no, we are not an empire. You know, we've had these really sharp conversations about Cuba, but simultaneously, as I've <laughs> said on repeat over and over and over again, we have our own colony a couple hundred miles off the coast of Florida called Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has the ability, has the stability to determine their futures, and we won't even allow it because of financial interests, because of, of, of remnants of a, neo, of, a, of a military industrial complex that relied on it, uh, the, the, the island, for, for military games, and much, much more. So I urge folks on the left to think deeper and more complex 
about what we want to be, how we want to be the arbiters of freedom or democracy or all these words that we throw out there. But ultimately, that is what democratic socialists do want. Democratic socialism is the best form of democracy, in my opinion. And so how do we make sure that our country is not reliant on the capitalism that we've exploited through our empire and that we are making sure others are not creating human rights crises that we are against? Because at the end of the day, we are anti-fascists, but anti-fascism today is very different than anti-fascism in World War II. So I ask you, what would you have done? Great question here. What would you have done with World War II? And that, I think, is the tough thing for us to understand right now. How do we as leftists see our standing in the world? All right, we have a wonderful show today. Brad, uh, oh, Brad tells me Ben Burgess is in the room. He is here. So we're going to bring him in in just a second. Uh, we'll be right back after this tiny little break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Our friend Ben Burgess is here. He has a piece out in Jacobin where he is a columnist. Uh, he's also host of Give Them an Argument podcast and the YouTube show. Go check it out. Also the author of Give Them an Ar Argument, uh, Logic for the Left, Myth and Mayhem, um, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. We love Jordan Peterson. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he is a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University's Perimeter College. Ben, what's going on? You wrote this piece, Bipartisanship is Garbage. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what, what inspired this, um, you know, this is a few weeks ago, but bipartisanship is still garbage. Uh, and it was uh, this uh, tweet from Jamal Bowman pointed out uh, the difference between uh, the original infrastructure bill and the bipartisan compromise version that uh, like the original one had $387 billion for housing, schools, buildings. Bipartisan one has nothing for house, school, housing, schools, and buildings. The original one had $400 billion for home and community-based care. The bipartisan one has nothing for that. Uh, even clean energy tax credits, which is a pretty sad stab at doing something about the looming climate catastrophe to start with, uh, goes from 363 billion to nothing. Uh, and okay, granted, you know, it's still unclear as of like yesterday exactly what's going on with uh, the, you know, reconciliation one and what's getting voted on when, you know, it's, it's all kind of a mess right now. Uh, but what really interests me in the article is more. Why is it that so many people in the media were treating this as this like great victory? It's like, oh, it's so good. It's bipartisan. You know, it's, it's not like, okay, this kind of sucks that, uh, that, you know, sure, blame it on, you know, Mashin and Cinema or whoever, you know, that, the, that you had to do it this way instead of just passing the entire thing by reconciliation. You can make a pragmatic argument like that. It's like, okay, fine, maybe. But uh, that, is treated as oh look you know see that's you know just just like Biden said he would you know he could he could make this bipartisan stuff happen and that's so wonderful and the question is why is that a good thing like like why why is it good uh, that this is something that the 
Democratic and Republican establishments could agree on, because I think if you look back at a lot of the most horrible things that have happened in the last 20 years, they generally fall into that category. It's interesting because, I mean, you'd think that um, something like infrastructure, something that was, was, if you want to go talk about being bipartisan, that was the ultimate bipartisan effort, you know, 11 years ago, pre-Obama. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how there are senators who are conditioned by bipartisanship now flipping their entire perspective on stuff that they've voted a million times in favor of. Um, and, you know, it, it, to me, it's just, it, it's, it's a symptom of like the, 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 I don't know, the, the constant, I, I, I don't want to use the pandemic because that's a word that's being used for legitimate reasons, but uh, fill in your other, um, yeah. you know, sickness that has invaded Washington. I mean, they're so conditioned by these games, um, you know, the, the the deals that are happening behind the scenes that they're willing to go against their own records. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, the other side of this is also just I feel like the bipartisanship is garbage, but the myth of bipartisanship is being busted. And I think the best example of that is right now you have this mod squad that's supposedly going to war with Nancy Pelosi. I mean, do you think this is real or is there something that we're missing? Like, is there some sort of other game happening behind the scenes? I mean, I don't know if there's something else happening behind the scenes, but uh, if, you know, I mean, if it is what it looks like, uh, that's, that's really bad uh, that it's, it's uh, that. I mean, this this almost feels like the uh, you know the was it the uh, uh, the New York you know legislature you know the uh, the, the uh, IDC the IDC is yes <laughs> the Independent Democratic uh, Conference that held up uh, the, the the Senate the Democratic left in the Senate um, in New York and basically stopped everything. Yeah, but I mean, like whether it's a like whether it's like some kind of like elaborate game like that or or whether it's it's just like these particular, you know, people, you know, moderates like really do care this much about it. Like that what they're saying is like, oh, uh, it's it's really important that, you know, don't, you know, don't do uh, you know, don't vote on this um like the three point five trillion dollar you know package that would actually do a lot more to uh to help people. Uh you know, yeah, do do like focus on the stuff that's uh that's bipartisan. That you know that cuts all that out, and and I just like okay, kind of stepping away from the ins and outs of that, and what's actually going to happen, you know, with like that sort of immediate battle. Like, I think that a lot of people hear that word bipartisan, and it sounds nice. And I think part of the reason that it sounds nice is that what they might be thinking of is like okay, it's you know. You have friends, neighbors, you know, family members, you know, who, uh, you know, who are Republicans, whatever, you know, who disagree with you about politics, uh, and and you think that there's something sort of bad or unhealthy about like feeling like you're constantly at war with those people, and so it's the idea of transcending that sounds nice, but the thing is, this on a policy level, the stuff that's bipartisan is actually super unpopular with everybody. Like, uh, you know, like there are- Like what? Like what? Okay, well, uh, there are overwhelming, uh, there are overwhelming majorities of the the public 
uh, that would uh, that would support uh, that would support raising the minimum wage. There's lots of pulling on that. Um, that uh, none of the even the even the Republicans who pretend to be uh, populists, you know, whatever that means, you know, your Josh Howleys and you know your uh, you know your Steve Bannons, you know Marco Rubio lately, like none of those people, you know, support that. Uh, there are you know majority of the public uh, says that they you know support Medicare for all, and I know there's a little bit of ambiguity in some of that polling because not everybody understands the difference between that and the public option. But even a public option is something that you know I think you're never going to get a single Republican uh, in any kind of position of power to uh, to support. And that's something that there, there are even some polls where like 51% of Republicans, uh, you know, support that like on a grassroots level. Uh, but on the level of, of Republicans who actually hold power, none of them do. And I think that this makes sense because if you think about how the parties work in the U.S., because, you know, we don't have like a separate like labor party or socialist party or whatever, like a normal country would. Uh, so anybody who would be in that in any other country uh, ends up working through democratic primaries. If they get elected, you know, they get elected through democratic primaries. So you have one party that has that as a component in it and has like organized labor as a component in it that can exercise some pressure, often frustratedly little, but some, you know, uh, on, on some, politicians who even aren't in that, you know, Bernie Kratz sort of wing. Uh, but then, like, the, you know, the establishment of the Democratic Party is obviously awful, and uh, the establishment of the Republican Party is worse because they don't have anything equivalent to that Bernie Kratz wing. They don't have anything equivalent to labor unions to exercise some kind of pressure in a positive direction. So uh, so none of the stuff that would actually help people uh, is at all bipartisan. I mean, even a public option, never mind Medicare for all, you're not going to get any Republicans to support that. Uh, you know, raising the minimum wage to $50 an hour you know, or more, you're not going to no Republicans uh, support that. Uh, you know, free college, no Republicans support that. Uh, and, you know, you could go, you could go down the list and... You know, conversely, though, I mean, think about all of the things that have happened, you know, that we're, I mean, we're finally getting to the end of this god-awful 20-year bloody war in Afghanistan, uh, which, which, by the way, like getting upset about that also seems to be pretty bipartisan, that, you know, that uh, people, uh, you know, like lots of Democrats seem to be very eager to Benghazi themselves about it. But, uh, but like, the start of that war... Doesn't get more bipartisan than that. Uh, you know, Barbara Lee you know, voted no, that was it. Uh, the, you know, the Patriot Act, super bipartisan, you know, pretty much everybody voted for that. Uh, the Iraq War, I mean, that was that was very bipartisan, not like not quite as bipartisan as those other two, but like most of the Democratic right. leadership at least supported it. Well, it's interesting because I, I, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, the, the, this there is a sea change, and and Nancy Pelosi at least is perceived to be frustrated with the Smod Squad, and and I don't blame her. These are some of the biggest assholes in the Congress, like, like uh, Josh Gothheimer and and uh, you know uh, what's his name in Long Island. Uh, you know, they're not like the most popular people, even in their own states. They're they're on their own little islands trying to survive redistricting whatever whatever else they're 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 positioning themselves um through right now. With that being said, if I were running against them or if I was Nancy Pelosi or if I were 
Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer or the Democratic leadership, you know, take Nancy's face off of it because, of course, you know, people love to demonize that. I would come up with this messaging saying opportunities law that that these lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans missed to be bipartisan. Marco Rubio says he's a bipartisan. He, he, he's bipartisan. He supports bullshit. He's against the $15 minimum wage. He's against, you know, eliminating student debt. He's he's for raising taxes on everybody but his donors. I mean, that's like, I feel like we have to reframe the way that we're communicating power. Now that the centrists are a little bit more beholden to the left and they see that the, especially through the financial crisis that we're, we're experiencing right now in the pandemic, they're forced to actually move a little bit more to the left. I feel like this is the moment for them as, as the establishment to really reframe the entire narrative and pin it on them as they're the ones holding up bipartisanship. Now, Anything. Yeah. Now, granted, one of your examples is about Marco Rubio being a good student debt relief. And he, uh, he does have, uh, right, he does right. have his proposal to, um, to give you a one year pause at student debt payments. If you're a survivor of a terrorist attack. So <laughs> that's, Sounds like a joke. You really, you really. I know, I know, I know, I know. No, and and your survivor of terrorist attacks. Does that include like uh, people walking into grocery stores without masks on and like uh, surviving COVID in Florida? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Uh, yeah, if we're going to stretch that, maybe we could work with that somehow. But uh, but yeah, no. I mean, obviously, like what it sounds like bipartisanship might mean none of these people would do, which is like support things that are like broadly popular with ordinary people who like tell pollsters that they're Democrats and ordinary people who tell pollsters they're Republicans, uh, that like a lot of that stuff's good. I mean, like even, even during that, like this giant freak out about the, uh, in the media about the pullout uh, from Afghanistan, uh, at that, like there's a, a poll, like, yeah, you know how many people actually oppose the withdrawal from Afghanistan despite like the two weeks of the sky is falling media coverage? 22%. The reporters, basically. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that that are like being funded by, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, ending the forever wars, super popular, uh, you know, paid people more money, super popular, getting yeah. healthcare, super popular, and all of these things. Um, like nothing that I've mentioned isn't supported by at least like 40% or something of people who call themselves uh, Republicans. But in practice, that's not what bipartisanship means. What bipartisanship means is the stuff that the establishments of the two parties can agree on. And the stuff that the establishments of the two parties can agree on is generally going to be awful. I mean, because of course it is, because that's like what they could agree on means like, okay, what is stuff that doesn't in any way come from the influence of like labor? What doesn't in any way come from the influence of the Bernie wing? What's just sort of like good for business and, you know, good for the military industrial complex and, you know, and, and, and all of that. So, I mean, I, th I think that, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, maybe like Schumer and Pelosi and all those people could, you know, try something like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm actually surprised to have it. It sounds like the kind of thing that they, they, they do, you know, like at, at some point yeah. they'd say, they'd say that, but, uh, but I think that, I mean, I think that everybody else, like just as a default, like if you hear, Oh, this, you know, this is, this has like unanimous bipartisan support. Like you know, your first thought should be, Oh shit. What, right. what is it? Like, what are they well, doing? 
part of that is because the pop, the, the, the normal population of voters has been tricked into thinking by the right and by the center right and by the center left to some extent that bipartisanship it, and, and, and Joe Biden, of course, that bipartisanship is good for the people, that we don't want to move the country too far left. What does that even mean? I mean, we I, I feel that the left and, and Democrats need to stop talking about it as left versus right and and saying people versus business, people versus the military industrial complex. And if their idea of bipartisanship means, oh, we have to cut deals, all of us taxpayers, all of us who want Medicare for all, all of us who've been paying the taxes to have Medicare for all, oh, no, we have to cut deals with... um, with, with, you know, some missile manufacturer. Um, it's like we have to reframe how we discuss these things. We have to flip the script because they've controlled the script for so long. I, I do believe that there's this opportunity. And simultaneously, you, you kept saying popular, popular, popular. I mean, the, the center left has demonized populism as some sort of far right extreme thing. When, of course, you and I both know and our, and our audiences do that, that populism is, is essentially a reflection of the people, like what their interests are. So, you yeah. know, there's yeah. like a moment here. We can do this. I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, like it's I mean, populism. Uh, I mean, I really like the way that Thomas Frank frames in his last book that the, uh, that, uh, you know, if populism means anything, you know, it should at least like fit like what, like the original populists, like the populist party, you know, advocated. Uh, and the, the problem is that, yeah, the last few years, like the, uh, the center left people you're talking about, use it, use that term kind of as a way of conflating, um, being like a sort of Bernieish social democrat and being like a Steve Bannon, you know, kind of uh, like right wing demagogue, uh, that you know, because oh, those are both populist, you know, whatever that is. I mean, I think what you should say is no. I mean, the uh, the, the Bannons and Howleys and Rubios of the world are uh, are pseudo populists. I mean, like because because I, I understand it's a vague term, but if it means anything, it should mean supporting the things that that would actually help like the broad mass of people at the expense of, of elites and nothing that any of these people support uh, does that. I mean, they kind of try to fudge the difference by talking about, you know, like woke capital or whatever, but it's like, no, the part you object to is the woke, not the capital. Like, you know, you're all for, you know, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that part of the, part of what you're talking about, about, you know, like, Oh, you know, what, who, Move the country too far left. You think, okay, what it, what does that mean? And I and I think there's the same kind of like fuzzy ambiguity that like helps there because if if people hear that and they think, oh, what they mean is they don't want like the minimum wage to be too high, or you know they they, they don't want too many people to have health care, then that's like you know I mean good luck with that, right? I mean no, nobody's uh, that's that's not going to be a, a winning message, you know. Say like, um, there's there's a reason, um, you know, there's a reason that like the last, uh, you know, CPAC, you know, was America uncancelled, not like America don't raise the minimum wage, because uh, you know that wouldn't have. That's been, right. That would have been a popular message. You know? so <laughs> I think the way that they, I think the, I think the sort of rhetorical trick is that you know they say, oh, you don't want the country to move too far left. Like, I think it's like I don't know what they're, you know, what they want people to think, where they want their heads to go is like, I don't want people to like, I don't know, make too big a deal about how we all need to use the, the phrase Latinx now or, you know, something like that, right? You know, but of course that's like, that's just a sideshow. I mean, it has absolutely nothing to do with, um, 
with with actual policy on which uh, on which like left wing positions are popular for for a reason because I think it's a I think it's a pretty hard sell to uh, to to get like you know I mean I think there's a reason why back like back in like you know the eighties uh, it was like you know you vote for the Republicans for the Jesus and like you stay for the economics not vice versa and now it's like I don't know you you vote for the Trumpist culture war. You know, and you stay for the Reaganomics, you know, like not, Exactly. You know. I mean, this is why I think we, I mean, if there's a lesson to be learned out of that, we have to be ruthless and we should be, you know, uh, you're you're running against a Republican or Republicans running against you, whatever. You, your mailers, your ads should be so-and-so's uh, insurance company donors don't want you to have health care. You're paying for it. They're getting the money. Like we have yeah. to be ruthless and we're just catching ourselves getting sucked into these little cultural wars, culture wars again that we fell for in the 80s that we fell for in the 90s and part of that falling for that was was that you actually had democrats obviously speaking of thomas frank you know working hand in hand to make sure that those narratives took over at least this time around at least this time around there's some resistance to engaging with that um and i think part of that is just because the population has shifted but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think some of it, I mean, the population shifted. Some of it's, uh, I think a lot of it's just that there's an actual, like, real opposition to, to the Democrat, like, within the Democratic Party now, that it's not like, you know, whatever, 2004, where there are, like, you know, nine centrists on the stage, and then, like, Dennis Kucinich down here somewhere, you know, at the at the, uh, at the end is, like, the sort of voice of, uh, of all the things that we would actually want, uh, that, you know, that there's, there's a sort of meaningful and identifiable... Uh, and, and popular, you know, opposition uh, within uh, within Democratic uh, office holders, and then part of it's just like, I mean, I mean, the COVID happened. Everything's kind of on fire, and you have to like even the, I mean, even the Republicans have, if you want to talk this way, like moved to the left a little bit in terms of like how much money they're willing to spend and stuff like that. I mean the the Republican negotiated positions on these things are still better than like anybody's were, you know, a few years ago. I mean, not because they any like not because anybody moved them to the left ideologically, but just because like, you know, the conditions. Yeah, the conditions have forced them to. Exactly. Yeah, it's almost like we could just print money. Um, ben, <laughs> super interesting conversation. I I love having these conversations. Um, they're like thought experiments, and really, we should be having more of them because. Uh, like we said, this is, we're, we're in a different moment and, um, we got to start, you know, learning from the errors of our past. So appreciate your, your work Ben Burgess host of give them an argument, go check it out on a, what's your, we'll, we'll, we'll put the information in our, in our inner space below the box, you know, all those little boxes where we put stuff, but go check it out. If you're not already subscribing, just, just, just use the YouTube search bar, get through the argument. I think that's what everybody does anyway. I think so too. I don't know. <laughs> I did that recently. I was, I was, cause like I'm, I'm abroad right now. And so sometimes things don't pop up the same. The data controls are all weird. And so I was like looking for my, sh- the show Instagram. And I saw that there's like a fake account of me on Instagram that I didn't know about. And it's, it's like account. Um, I can't like, I have to follow it to, they have to accept my following. And I'm like, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> like, what's going on over there. <laughs> so if you're following the fake account, <laughs> there's anything inappropriate, just know it's not mine. <laughs> Every once in a while, do search your name. That's basically the lesson here. Search. 
All right, thanks, man. See you soon. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Our next guest is has a new book coming out soon this winter. It's called The Class Matrix, Social Theory After the Cultural Turn. And he's a professor of sociology at NYU, Vivek Chibber. He also has a piece out right now called Conservatism is Morally Bankrupt. It is in this month's Jacobin, this latest Jacobin. A perfect conversation for today because we just had a whole conversation about how bipartisanship in uh, the U.S., of course, is completely bogus. Um, and the end of the conversation, we started to talk about the culture wars on the right and how they've used it as a weapon against us and been more or less successful. So so let's just start off with what made you, what inspired you to write this piece? Uh, well, it's a, a very mundane explanation. They, um, the, the Tribune magazine in England asked me to write it. So um, I said, okay, <laughs> this was, was, wasn't so much an inspiration as it was a, a instruction coming down where I had to do it. Okay, so but clearly there's something in the air um, that made this relevant. Why, why now? Why yeah, very much versus so. a year um, ago or prior? Well, partly, it's, as you're saying, the culture wars are heating up big time. Uh, and uh, in those culture wars, the right is using very well-known tropes, very well-known strategies to present a case for itself. And there's a reflexive response from the left that a lot of us thought was inadequate, which is when the right says, we stand for community, we stand for tradition, the left says, well, screw community, screw tradition. Um, we're the, you know, the, the, uh, the iconoclasts, we're the people who tear things down. Um, and I think that gets things wrong in two ways. One is that the left also stands for its own version of community and tradition. And the second is you cannot let the right get away with saying that they stand for the community against rampant individualism, because in fact, the right is the defender of unbridled individual power over the community. And this has to be gotten right straight on the left if they want to respond effectively. I really like you say this because, you know, we just, as we just wrap this prior interview, uh, we talked about flipping the script and how even the the myth of bipartisanship, for instance, using that segment, um, is is constructed around the power lying being negotiated with, which is ultimately a very small group of people who are pushing uh, an agenda that's not very nationally popular. At least, um, you know, the insurance companies fighting against Medicare for all, uh, student loan debtors, and and big banks fighting against you know student student debt relief um, and against free college. All things that you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage being fought by big business when most people want it. Um, the conditions are are ripe for, I believe, the flipping of the script. Um, but you know what I love about what you just said is. Why are we even acknowledging that they own that space? Because they don't, because they are the ones pushing for individualism. Yeah, well, we didn't used to. Uh, the left, right. You have to remember what the, what's called the left right now is quite well-off, wealthy people, university educated, who inhabit most of the same circles that the right does. This is a debate within the elite, what's called the left and right debate. Now, I, I don't, I'm not sure what was said about bipartisanship, but let me just make a couple of points about it. One is that it's, it's not a myth um, in that the U.S. is ruled by a bipartisan consensus with, between the two parties, both of whom serve the same class. Now, what's a myth about it is this notion that if you reach across the aisle, it means that you're serving a greater variety of interests. That's why it's appealing that, okay, we're not 
sectarian. We're not extremists. We don't represent just our people who vote for us or fund us. We're willing to negotiate. Okay, but what's being negotiated is a truce between two wings of the same class, representatives of the same class. So in a very real sense, bipartisanship is real. Now, the way you flip the script on that is by saying you're not reaching across the aisle to anybody but more people like yourselves. What you're ignoring, as you just said, is that you are in fact representing a tiny section of the population because the vast majority of the population supports policies which neither party is very eager to pass right now. And that just, the, the important thing there is that that bipartisanship is an effort to bypass the major question, which is not what do these two parties represent? Sorry, uh, which is not what uh, the major question is, what do these two parties represent? Instead of asking, what do the people want? And that, like Biden's bill right now, the infrastructure bill, the whole debate is on pay-fors, on the debt and all that. When the real, the fact is that bill is overwhelmingly supported by Democrats and a substantial section of Republican voters as well. So what is a bipartisanship? It's an attempt to forestall what the majority of the population wants. That's the way in which it, it has to be, uh, the, the script there has to be flipped. Okay, so I mean, this is ultimately you know, the big question: is 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 it's it's this narrative around populism, right, and individualism, or the, where the individuals, at least the individuals in control, are big business, are the military-industrial complex, and of course, people who like maybe aspire to be that someday, or or whatever their <laughs> delusions are. Um, but I think what's so interesting about the cultural war com- conversation, and and it was weaponized so well in the eighties. Um, by the right wing is is it does sort of tap into in a very weird way, even though it professes community, it taps into this individual interest. You know, they're coming for your community, your family, you know, they're uh, uh, the rapists, the murderers, the blah, blah, blah. They're coming for your children. It's kind of a mixed narrative, no? All ideology and ideological messages, if they're going to be effective, have to tap into individual interests, whether they're ideologies about community and messages about community or messages about individuals. Even nationalist ideologies have to somehow tell people your individual situation is going to be better if you buy into this conception of the nation. Identity politics has to feed into this idea that your identification with this particular group will redound to your individual interests. So that particular aspect of the culture wars is generic. It's something that they have in common. The interesting question to ask is, the way you just posted is right, how exactly do they tap into your individual interests? And the way in which the the right is mobilizing the culture wars is to say that what the Democratic Party or what the left wants to do is to rip apart not only your community, not only your particular, you take away your job, give it to the immigrants, things like that. Uh, but they also want to take away your sense of self-respect, your sense of self. That they want to come in and they want to take away uh, the American flag. They want to take away your church. They want to take away your ethnicity. They want to take away your sense of belonging. Now, why is that effective? It's effective because over the last 25 to 30 years, as the market has ripped apart the lives of so many people and ground them into the dirt, what is it that they have to hold on to? They have to hold on to their neighbors, their immediate community, the people who get them by in times, in difficult times. And they hold on to a myth. You try to tell themselves things can get better. And that myth is, once upon a time, 
things were better. That's the MAGA myth, right? Making America great again, because it once was great until all this other stuff happened. And these liberal elites, these coastal cappuccino drinking liberal elites came with their university bred ideas and their French philosophy, and they took it all away from us. That's all pointing to an individual interest, the individual anxieties that working people have, and some you know, professionals also have, uh, about their lives. The other com- the section of the population that the culture wars appeal to, of course, is the upper classes, whose, whose fundamental concern is taxation, and whether or not that taxation, there the message is very naked, very uh, uh, direct, we're going to lower your taxes. It's the other part where you appeal to the class that you shouldn't have any success appealing to, which is the poor. How does the right appeal to them? It's by these real anxieties that they're facing, which they think they, the, they, the right thinks they can package as being torn asunder by the welfare state, by minorities, by the liberals, et cetera. You know, as we're in the midst of a pandemic, um, the welfare state has obviously become more and more important to preserve um, whatever semblance is left. Have, has the right wing been stuck uh, at least those those who who are controlling these narratives, whether it's hosts on right wing networks or lawmakers, are, have they had difficulty, you know, making those types of attacks on on what they would traditionally call welfare state? Yeah, no doubt about it. It's very different from the '80s. Now, uh, if you'll notice the uh, the criticism of the Biden's uh, infrastructure plan as well as the reconciliation bill. That criticism is actually quite different from what it was in the 80s. It's no longer these are handouts to the poor. It's no longer these are welfare queens ripping off the system because they know that it's just far too popular. You can't attack it directly. So they've got two tropes that they're bringing out. One is the pay force. Are you going to pay for this? And you know, if the Democrats were a little bit more aggressive, they could say, well, how did Donald Trump pay for his? Nobody ran up the, the deficits like Bush and Trump did. So if deficits didn't matter, then why now do they suddenly matter to you? And the second trope, of course, is that this deficit is going to be a debt handed down to future generations. And here the Democrats are fumbling it. They're fumbling it because they come out of the same culture themselves. For 30 years, they abided by a kind of hawkish attitude to budgets when they should be saying more openly. And some of the people, the Bernie Sanders wing is saying this, and they need to say it more aggressively. It is the most ridiculous uh, criticism to say infrastructure bills and bills to help education are going to run up a deficit, those pay for themselves. Those are actually capital expenditures. They're going to bring in more revenue, not less. Uh, so it's they're, they're not as effective in combating it. But as you said, the important point is the right is actually on the back foot. It cannot attack these bills the way it could so effectively even 20 years ago. And it's having to either try out policy uh, arguments that they themselves contradicted a mere four years ago, or arguments that can be easily rebutted if the media were not completely captured by their henchmen. Right. The media is completely captured by all this, and, and obviously Afghanistan uh, is is distracting them away from uh, these conversations even more so. With that being said, uh, let's take Afghanistan last few weeks out of the equation. Yeah. Um it's almost like they're 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 telling on themselves the the culture wars as they lean more and more into some 
Very ridiculous. I mean, as we're in the midst of a pandemic, you know, some of these folks are obsessed with the most ridiculous things that, you know, affect 0.000001% of the population. I mean, it's comical at this point. To me, that feels like they're losing. Um, and of course, we all know that it's the, problem the election is, it's is on the Democrats. It's a two-party system. If we have proportional representation, these are, this would be a fringe element by now. The problem is the people who hate the Democrats have nowhere else to go. And the truth of the matter is, you have to ask, why are the culture wars so effective? One reason they're effective, and they are effective, one reason they're effective is, as I said, there are real anxieties that people have. And for the longest, longest time, the Democrats, being a neoliberal party themselves, were accomplices in ripping apart working people's lives, whether they're Hispanic, white, or Black. And this has generated a great deal of animus toward the party. The intelligentsia wedded to the party, its response was to say, shut up and take it. Shut up and take it because these other guys are even worse. And when they were asked, well, why are they worse? The responses were always very elitist responses, right? So first of all, because there's only two parties and because the Democrats have for the longest time had no real visible concern for working people, there are a lot of working people who think they represent an alien force, which is not false. Uh, the second thing is uh, the Democrats, while as a party are reviled, the people around them, the intelligentsia and the media figures around them are reviled for being elitist or at least seen as being elitist and snobbish and care more about symbols and cultures and tiny little microaggressions and things like that uh, than whether or not you have health care. And that, too, is not false. <laughs> uh, the, the intelligentsia around the Democratic Party has been spiraling into a moral degeneracy for 25, 30 years in which the poor are not seen as being deserving of the same rights that the middle class or the upper middle class has. When Hillary Clinton referred to them as a basket of deplorables, what do you do with that? This is the person who's supposed to represent what? The working class, right, in the United States. So. Yeah, the COVID situation should put the Republican reliance on culture wars in a spotlight as to how absurd it is. But it's, the reason it's not as much as we think it should be is because they're tapping into something quite real. And the challenge for the left is it's got to get beyond the consultants, the professionals, the uh, academics, the politicos who the Democratic Party relies on. And the left has to do what Bernie Sanders has been calling for, which is to reintegrate itself into the lives of working people as being one of them, not as a cabal that comes down every four years and says, hey, time for your vote. Line up and give us your vote. Yeah, and in part of that um, is, of course, having a Democratic Party that's an organized Democratic Party, a party that is, uh, you know, working with unions, not pushing them out. Um, so a Democratic Party as a whole supporting the PRO Act so that, you know, unions can revive themselves and and that has membership all over the country that's engaged and has, you know, offices that uh, can run people and, and groom the next generation and do things that the Republicans do so well, which I guess leads to my last question, which is the Republicans are so organized and so much of this culture war has come from like actual organized efforts efforts in their communities, whether it's churches and other places. Can you kind of describe like what their ecosystem looks like? And do we have to mirror it? Um, their, their organization 
beyond the halls of power is not very strong, actually. They do have a kind of, they do have boots on the ground, as it were, which they can mobilize. Uh, and the church is the main such. If you get beyond the church, they really don't have a lot going for them. Um, the, and I'll come to that in a second, okay? Um, the primary organization of the Republican Party is inside Congress, inside the Senate, and that's been so for quite a while now, for about, a, I would say, a whole a full generation. There are mechanisms that sustain that, institutional mechanisms. The main one is money. The, the party has, has, does a very good job controlling the purse strings, and the PACs around them are very well organized. Those PACs are business PACs, and they coordinate well as to who they want to give money to. But that being said, there's an asymmetry in the challenge the Democrats have and the Republicans have, which makes it easier for the Republicans to be organized, which is they're organized around a what we might call a negative agenda. Their agenda for the past 30 years has been to tear things down, to either block any meaningful legislation or to tear down the institutions of the New Deal and the institutions of the welfare state that had carried over into the 90s. That makes it very easy. All you've got to do is say, let nothing meaningful go through and tear down what exists. That's an easy debate to have inside your party because you don't have to disagree. Or you don't have to rather agree on what, how to move forward. For the Democrats, there's a greater challenge, which is to say, how do we rebuild? Now, there's a section of the Democratic Party that says, rebuild what? That's the blue dogs. That's what's, what's this hilarious term called the moderate. Mod squad. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what's moderate about these people. They're to the right, and they're right, they should be in the Republican Party. The group of nine right now that said we won't vote for a bill that will actually imp- for cut down child poverty by half because what? It's too expensive. Expensive for what? So there's that group. But then there's also the, a, a growing progressive group. And now there's a clash inside the party because the pre- progressive group for the first time in about 40 years is actually able to influence the course of events. That just makes it harder for them. That means that there's a, going to be a war inside the, the party. Republicans don't face this. So they're able to be well-organized. The moment the Republicans actually have to try to fix something, to do something, you'll see the same thing happening inside that party. Now, the second part of your question was, does the left have to mirror them? In a very, very abstract land sense, yes, you need to be a party. You can't just be in a, a big tent in which you allow anybody in as long as they sign a card. You need to be a party. The Democrats will never be that. It's just not going to happen, right? But what the left could do is mimic a party. And the way you do that is you have an inside-outside strategy of some, you can call it whatever you want, right? A, a surrogate party. Some people call it an inside-outside strategy. The left needs to be organized inside a trade union movement, inside civic organizations that are in working class neighborhoods, and a political arm of those movements. It was once the Communist Party. It was once the Socialist Party. Something like that. If those words freak you out, something like that, which is embedded in the lives of these people. And it might even have some presence inside the Democratic Party. It might, it might not. But until the left actually is organized with one message, with a strategy, with a way of bringing working people together of all races, ethnicities, genders, it's just not going to be very effective because the right controls the media, the right controls politics, the right has all the money. It can set up the narrative the way it wants. The left, the only way it can counter it is if it comes to get together around a strategy. We have 100 years of experience as to how that's done, 100 years. The difficulty is that what's right now called the left is the wrong class. It's just not going to move forward as long as it's a group of professionals. 
One thing I will give Biden is he doesn't seem to engage with the culture war narratives. He's been very, very good. He's very adroit because, look, in fact, what people want to hear is that you're going to make their lives better, that you're going to get them medical care, you're going to get them jobs, et cetera. They really don't care if the University of Wisconsin said a rock is racist. It just doesn't matter to them. What it matters to is professors, grad students, and some of their kids in the class who are into virtue signaling. This is this is just theater. It has nothing to do with politics, and it's wisdom too. I mean, he is he is bringing forty years of of maybe there's some wisdom he's he's brought yeah, along the know. way. I mean, uh, this is the first time he's done anything good. So that, that's not I know <laughs> accolades. He, he's been he's been a henchman for the corporate community for the longest time. He surprised anybody who who says they knew this was coming is lying. He surprised exactly. all of us. He reached down somewhere and found a conscience, found some morality. Maybe he sees. And these are his last days, and he doesn't want to be seen as a complete waste. So maybe that that was it. But maybe he realized I, I, we could call it wisdom. Yeah. Maybe he realized these are my last days. I'm not going to go and have a a, a, a 90th birthday party in uh, Martha's Vineyard. I mean, look, he, he sees Bernie Sanders standing next to him in debate after debate, same age, and he's reached the status of an icon in American culture. This will be known as the Sanders era from yeah. now. And he sees that and he goes, well, shit, I mean, what am I going to be known for? You know, being the what the bank representative inside uh, Congress. So exactly. m- maybe he did something to him. I think Sanders has had just an unmeasurable, immeasurable effect on political culture in this country. If, if you want a template on how to win the culture wars, watch Sanders. He cuts exactly. right through them. He That's cuts right. right through them. The squad has not yet learned to do that. They take a position within the culture wars, not Sanders. It's very, very interesting. Um I'd love to have that conversation about how, you know, hope, let's have you on again soon, hopefully, if, if, if you're open to it. Um, but we'd love to talk about how we can, when we respond to the culture wars, when we, how we talk about how race, how we talk about gender um, within the context of, of, a, of a, a movement for everybody. Um, you know, it's intersectional, obviously, is the term. But, you know, and so that it doesn't, we don't fall into the traps of the right-wing culture wars. I think it's a super important conversation and a great lesson for folks to hear, but um, that'll happen next time, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for writing this piece. We'll put it up in uh, our our info box and um, hope to have you on again very soon. Thanks for having me. No, I love Sunset Lake CBD. How much do I love Sunset Lake CBD? And why do I love Sunset Lake CBD? And why is Sunset Lake CBD different from other CBDs? I'll start with one thing. I have tried other CBDs. I was I was very curious about this movement. I didn't know if it was a gimmick or not. So I bought some CBD. I was told it'll help me with my migraines. I tried it. It tasted like crap. It was really expensive and it didn't help with my migraines. And then I just thought, it's a scam. Until our dear friend over at the Majority Report, Sam Cedar, was raving about Sunset Lake CBD because he uses it for all of his ailments because he's getting up there in age. Let's not lie. <laughs> so am I. Uh, <laughs> so he talked about Sunset Lake CBD and I tried it and Sunset Lake CBD reached out to us uh, and I got to try all sorts of products, whether it's their tinctures, their salves, uh, they have fudge, they have gummies, uh, there's lotion with arnica in it. Uh, what am I missing here? There's all sorts of products. Uh, they have there's um, the dog biscuits that have peanut butter and pumpkin and flour, oat flour for your dog or yourself. 
I have a dog that has a lot of anxiety, especially post-pandemic, because Bijou got to chill with people 24-7. And now when people leave the home, Bijou has a little anxiety, none like to be alone, and is causing a little bit of a disaster at home every night uh, when people leave the home, when his people leave. So what helps with that? Sunset Lake CBD has a product for it, and it calms his nerves, and he just chills. And he just like lays there and looks out the window and he's a happy-go-lucky dog enjoying his his senior years in life. (laughs) Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products as I've I've, uh, described. You can go check out all the products at sunsetlakecbd.com. They're designed to help with stress, aches, and pains. They actually took a farm. It was a Ben and Jerry's farm and diversified it uh, to grow premium hemp, which you can also smoke. They sell those products too. That helps me. I really like that actually. It's an enjoyable experience. Um, When you support Sunset Lake CBD, you're supporting sustainable agriculture and you're enhancing a rural economy and also creating meaningful employment in that community in Vermont. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour and Their employees own the majority of the company. And on top of all that, they support independent media, which is so kind because, you know, independent media takes a lot. When you don't have capital behind you or investors, it takes a lot to get sustainable and to grow your audience. And sometimes it takes years. And for them to invest in supporting independent media like our show, like the David Pakman show and Majority Report, it makes a huge difference. I mean, for us, it it helps us so much that we're able to build our show, show more and have more support on our show so we can create more content for you. But most companies won't even go to you until you've you know really hit the big leagues. Um, and I think that's why a lot of, of, of uh, shows out there have made a little bit of a turn uh, towards clickbaity stuff and to the right wing because they realize there's money in the right wing. So this is actually what they're doing is extremely important for the left infrastructure to maintain its values, to, to stay in operations and to compete with right-wing narratives. So sunsetlakecbd.com is a good company with good values and amazing product. You can go check it out and you can get 20% off of your order if you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in NOMI, N-O-M-I, all caps, I believe, or maybe not, uh, but go check it out, sunsetlakecbd.com, NOMI. I know Dorsey loves the coffee. I just got to add that. Go check it out, uh, sunsetlakecbd.com. We will be right back with Arun Chowdhury, host of the committee program. All right. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, the one, the only Arun Chowdhury. He is a political filmmaker, formerly the first and not formerly the first, you were the first official White House videographer and the uh, creative director. <laughs> and the creative director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. But most notably, he is the host of the committee program, which airs here on this channel on Mondays. Uh, a run before At we. 3 p.m. Begin- Eastern Standard Time. Thank you. I'm glad you're doing that. Um, I don't know what time zone I'm in. I'm just like. Yeah, I've gotten really good at math since that. And I know you have this experience. Too, time math is much harder. Calendar math is hard. Time math is even harder. Both of them are hard, though. If I was like 100 days from now, what day is that? It would. It takes you like, you know, yeah. paper and calculators. And, you know, <laughs> you know it's, it's, it's intense. So basically, kids, what we're saying is skip calculus and just focus on time math. It should be a course in school. Yeah, time math. Yeah. Um, where are you right now? Where in the world? Uh, Pristina, Kosovo. 
Oh, how's how are things in Pristina, Kosovo? Good. There's going to be municipal elections coming up uh, in October. And also, you know, uh, they are about to accept one of the world's first huge shipments of Afghan uh, displaced peoples. So that'll also be interesting kind of see how that uh, plays out politically in the region. But yeah, things are always on the march here in Kosovo. So so that's interesting. Um, why Kosovo out of all the places for the first uh, refugees? Is it because uh, they, you know, the U.S. and Kosovo are unshakable allies, you know, forged in a very recent war. So this is, you know, 1999. So uh, usually there is a huge kind of uh, rush to help when the, when the U.S. asks for help. That's really interesting. I mean, I think yeah, I've noticed that here, too, is in the Balkans, at least, is that places that are more recently um, post-Soviet and allied with whether it's the EU or or the U.S. or both in some way or form, they respond to these calls in a way that it's almost like foreign to me. I'm like, wait, you're not debating. It's just like, yes, 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 of course. Anything I mean, in the U.S. I says. wake up here and I'm five minutes away from a statue of Bill Clinton that adorns the, oh, you know, the, the public I've square. So seen that. That's yeah. crazy. It's not a great statue, to be honest. They have much, it's a beautiful country with beautiful things. The, the Bill Clinton statue is a little kind of on the nose. You know, it doesn't kind of, it's just exactly him standing there, you know. <laughs> You're like, there's no saxophone, there's no. Yeah, no, he should be on a horse with a saxophone or something, you know. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Accurate depictions. Um, all right, so we have, who's on your show this week? Let's talk about that briefly. Oh, we have an amazing uh, woman who's coming in to talk about Hawaii, which is sort of, we were always talking about uh, American neocolonialism. And so this week, we're going to take a chance to talk about American proper colonialism. And so that should be incredibly interesting. I want to deal on that with Ms. Goodyear. Uh, uh, I actually forgot her name. I need to look that up. But has edited a wonderful series of essays about both resistance, colonialism, and neocolonialism in Hawaii, and with a special focus on the language. And this actually is something, and I'm working in Europe, and kind of, you know, when people start to say, well, who should get to, we had an episode on self-determination, and we talked to people from Barcelona, we talked to people from uh, Kosovo, and we talked to people, um, God, where else? Oh, Scotland, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, of course. Which is a great example, right? Because I don't even have Scottish anymore. It's not yeah. even like Gaelic, uh, Irish, which people right. are reconstructing. Like Scottish has kind of been defeated. Uh, in Barcelona, they speak Catalan, like very much. I think this is one of the categories where it sort of becomes more indisputable that like there is a, a population of people who maybe does want self-determination. And some of these things where languages are diminished and sometimes even destroyed is a real act of violence that does need that does need pushback and even international attention. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this, as you know, with Puerto Rico, we've, we talk about this ad nauseum, um, but even the opening of our show, we were talking about Afghanistan and one of the uh, conversations I'm seeing on the left, which is very perplexing to me. And I think it's just grounded in a, a lack of a depth that we on the left almost as a, as need to catch up to really fast is, well, the people of Afghanistan, Afghans should be able to self-determine, but that is based on a set of conditions that allows you to self-determine. And so first you need to get there, as you know, you can't self-determine if you're in the middle of a war. Uh, if you have multiple, you know, global interests playing out there, they're exercising their powers. I mean, it's not like they can hold elections tomorrow. Um, and elections itself, you know, we talk about how, how th this is also happening on the left is like, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, is 
democracy has become this sort of imperialistic brand, right? That we just, I mean, on the left, we, we associate, well, democracy and pushing democracy is, is a, is sort of like an, an extension of imperialism from America. But what other way would people be able to self-determine other through an act of democracy? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I mean, I think we see it in ways that are positive and negative. One of the ways is armed struggle, you know, which is a substitute for an election. Uh, and I think this also shows kind of how, the U.S., especially in Afghanistan, just when, when you're if you're trying if the goal is actually a kind of democratic expansion, then you can't jump in and sort of pick sides. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, ideology is often based on tribe in many places in the world, including in the U.S. We pretend this stuff doesn't exist. So you know there is something about us going up like. When it comes, like, if we do believe that democracy is desirable in some way uh, and in right. some form, uh, and, and if we, then we have to be willing to let it grow in its own ways and places with its own faces and not to be seen to kind of bluntly just put the U.S. one on people or even Europe, right? You know, you have places, you know, where America, we trudge along, we do okay, but we have an old clunky constitution that you wouldn't really wish on anyone else. You know, we have parts of it say that people aren't people, uh, you know, so like we should actually probably try to even get rid of those parts. Um, but if you look at a place like Kosovo or Bosnia-Herzegovina, they have these horrible constitutions that are like cut and pasted directly from other European constitutions, like a bit of Italy and a bit of France and a bit of Sweden. Let's see what happens. And we boil it all together and you get these crazy Frankenstein kind of constitutions, you know? And so, yeah, it's, we need to actually sort of put more self-determination in allowing people to see themselves in a democratic situation and allowing people to see themselves just in something for lack of a better term, better than where they're at then, you know, something that represents more of the will of more of the people. But you see people's suspicions just get confirmed, right? So people's worst impulses, and I'm not someone who immediately says, hey, every, you know, there should be absolutely no American interventionism. I'm in a place where that actually worked out extremely well for the people. You know, maybe the only example in the 21st century, but we have it and it's a real example. So I'm not ready to say that any and all things are bad. But the flip side of this is what you see in a place like France with a creep like Macron, where we are using our European secular values as a blunt instrument to punish anyone who doesn't think and look directly like us. And that's not healthy and that's not democratic. And when you cloak those things in democracy, for lack of a better term, this will be horrible. You damage the brand. It's interesting. Um, Remember when I said democracy was a brand on your show? I said it today. Yeah, you said it today. <laughs> yeah, just. <now. laughs> I did want to talk a little bit about. Oh, we'll get to that another show. Um, okay, let's let's. Speaking of democracy as a brand, because I think a perfect illustration of this is what's happening in um, Congress right now with this yes. mod squad. Right, these these nine uh, federal IDC members, is what I'm going to call them, meaning. Hopefully. And there's nine of them, just like the IDC. And many of them are from Democratic districts, um, meaning overwhelmingly Democratic districts, meaning there's no fear that they'll lose their seat if they go too far to the quote-unquote left. Um, but this is also a redistricting year. And so I'm sure that plays a factor in, into many of their decisions. But um, it's fascinating because you, you're seeing like this showdown between Nancy Pelosi and the Mod Squad 
Uh, and, and another like, like Carolyn Bordeaux, I'll use her as an example. She just got elected this last time. She represents an overwhelming minority district with many ref, uh, families that came as refugees in that district. Um, you know, first generation families from South Asia uh, and, 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 and plus, right? There's all, it's a very diverse district. She is a white woman. Like like a like an Emily's list white woman, you know pearls <laughs> that kind of lady. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There were many people who ran against her from the left. Uh, Nabila Islam, you know, she ran against her. She is a first generation, uh, you know, activist, and she, and and yet the establishment supported Carolyn Bordeaux. So I look at her because the, she's part of this like gang of nine, whatever you want to call them, the Mod Squad. And she's like willing to go to war with Nancy Pelosi, who literally, like, probably almost single handedly helped her get into her seat because she needed that that seat. Is this a real showdown? Like, do you think that Nancy Pelosi might actually um, pull off of the branding of hashtag democracy and 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 really exercise her power? I mean, look, uh, this is a tricky. I think this is honestly a tricky spot for her, and I hate myself for doing this. It's like the third time I've done something I say, hey, most are doing on your show, but I'm about to be like a body language expert, except that I do know about these things to some extent. I mean, I think you saw genuine concern and anger from her about what was happening. I don't think this was faked. I don't think it's some kind of stunt to show the non-mod squad, the, the prom squad, uh, you know, what's what. I do think this was legitimately a log jam caused and inflicted by members of her own caucus to do maximum damage to her. Right. Uh, so how she reacts to this is incredibly interesting to me and not to get personal about it. But as somebody who's been on the receiving end of when progressives get punished by Nancy Pelosi, you know, like very specifically by her and people who work for her. So this is a moment to see. Yeah, we're going to it seems it sounds now like we're going to get through it. Maybe we get both these bills passed. That's tremendous, actually, for a whole lot of people who need some of these trillions of dollars. It's tremendous for the nation who needs to not like actually have the, the Biden agenda completely collapse right now, let it die on the finish line in six months or something, you know? But like, uh, what happens afterwards? Who's in trouble? Who wakes up dead is something that I am incredibly interested in watching. And I'm not holding my breath to see an equal opportunity punishment happening to folks on the mod squad versus the prod squad. The prog stuff. I, I I don't see anybody in this like mod squad um overwhelmingly sophisticated in their their like uh, their 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 power games. Josh uh, Gothheimer is leading the charge, and and he's not like known to be like the genius of Congress for insurance reasons, right? Like he is somebody who yeah. Oh, this is probably what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. Go no, ahead. no, no. I think you're right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. I mean, I, I don't even think this was their idea, right? I think like, you know, an insurance person cut and paste a plan that someone wrote at some horrible think tank and then was like to eight people he could round up because it's said on a piece of paper, you got to have nine. Uh, who can I get to do this? You know, he went to war, as Donald Rumsfeld said, with the army that he had. And, you know, because none of these folks like that interesting or impressive, right? So like, this is definitely something that was cooked up, handed to him, and it was like, you got to do this. And I kind of think they probably like the attention they've gotten from it a bit. Tastes good. Mm -hmm. Sounds nice. It's fun. But I, I, this was not dreamed up in the head of any of these nine people. And here's the difference between the IDC and, and these folks. is It's not like the IDC was, you know, they were the, the brightest ones in, in the Senate either. Some of them were smarter, obviously, than others and understood power a little bit more than others. But what they had was 
Governor Cuomo, who is using them as a tool to prevent himself from looking like a bad progressive. <laughs> he I'm was against Joe guy Biden. Yeah, 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 he was a key factor there. I'm going to guess Joe Biden ain't, ain't really letting this moment right now. It's not it's not his favorite moment. No. <laughs> All right. OK, let's shift gears, because um, speaking of New York, I, I I don't I'm not. We're on TikTok. So, guys, go check out our TikTok. Uh, it's the Nomiki Show. I guess I should plug that. Um, we should put that in our new banner. We're going to we're going to put up a new banner next week. It's like a new thing that we're doing. Um, so we should add our TikTok. Just a little side note there. Uh, but go check out our TikTok. But Ruthie, who's on our team, is all about the TikTok. And she found this on TikTok. This guy, Rob Astorino, he's the former Westchester County executive. Uh, he ran against Governor Cuomo as a Republican last cycle. I believe he's running again. Let's watch this TikTok of Rob Astorino. <laughs> You are a master of campaign ads, Arun Chowdhury. What do you feel? How do you feel about this one? <laughs> I feel like it has a certain je ne sais something. <laughs> what's his target audience here? I'm like, yeah. I just no, start with the really basics. Hard. It's really hard to see what's going on here or why or what the point was. This is sort of one of those things where somebody's like, you should make a TikTok. You know, like the need to have the thing happened before the what it was. And as a content creator, I will tell all of you, you have the idea first and then you decide what it should be. Uh, this is an idea. That's a video. That's a blog post. That's a New York Times ad, you know. So this would be my advice to the entire team here is have the idea and then choose the medium. This was a medium searching for trouble and it found it. It found it. <laughs> It reminds me of when, like, like the Clinton, anything that they ever forced Hillary to do. Like, that's what that video reminds me of. Like, when she was doing the Macarena at the at the Democratic Convention in, like, 1992 or 4 or whatever it was, 6, 96. And she's, you know, everyone's dancing the Macarena. She's not even dancing the Macarena, but she's clearly uncomfortable. Or any of those videos that they would make her do, or she'd do, it like, appearance. It's just forced. And I don't know. I, I felt like those days were done, but clearly they're not. <laughs> Needs better consultants. All right, I, I didn't. I didn't want to hijack it. Well, so, you know, this is you. This is this is your thing. Does you need different consultants or no consultants? So is this a consultant problem? It's hard to say. I can't. I, I'm not. I'm not willing to commit that this wasn't a consultant's idea. It, it could have been like his kid's idea. The consultant's kid's idea, also. <laughs> right. Oh, all <laughs> of never the. Know, you never know whose kid it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad, you got to get on TikTok. Dad, why aren't you using TikTok for these ads? Well, yeah. great question. I mean, listen, there are a lot of, actually, the truth is there might be some secret strategy here because I might be sharing too much here. My father loves TikTok. Why shouldn't he? This <laughs> is too much information. I got to share. It's too funny. I'm no, sorry. no, I think he should. I think a lot of people, oh, no, go ahead. No, we're about to get a good story here. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, I'm going to be done. Okay, so I was, I was visiting my parents and um, one morning I got up and I was doing yoga in the living room and I'm like watching this. It's like a long class, like an hour and a half. And, and my dad had already been up. He gets up at four in the morning <laughs> and I'm like, I finished my yoga class. Well, where is he? I haven't seen him. I'm like, I couldn't find him. I'm walking around the house. His car's outside. He's not at coffee. He's not in the backyard. He's not around. I don't know where he is. Where's my dad? Where's Finally, <laughs> I realize I'm going outside and in the bathroom, I'm just hearing him cracking up. He likes, he's, he, he's like, like he sits on the toilet watching TikTok videos all morning. 
<laughs> I'm like, you are in there for two hours watching TikTok. He's like, it's comfortable. <laughs> So that's the genius of this it. Is ethnic that's families, it. everyone. Ethnic families. We have a different experience than the rest of you. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that an ethnic thing? Absolutely. No, no. Being okay. able to sort of talk about that it's happening at a bathroom time is a hundred percent. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish, <laughs> Greek, Italian, but you have to be something. Yes, that's it. <laughs> you cannot be waspy. This is to not be talking play. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wasp lens, just like grab a, a gin martini and and you know totally, and don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They all look amazing on you. All right. Um, okay. So I want to talk about this because, uh, I mean, capitalism. Okay. Like there, they, it never ceases to, me, to amaze me how ingenious the worst people in the world are at seizing an opportunity to a crisis. And there are no better people than the Betsy DeVos slash Eric Prince family. Um, yeah. Eric Prince of course is just, he makes the, he's like, he's like the, the dark devil over the Koch brothers shoulders, like whatever that, that person And just so everyone knows exactly. He's like a a mercenary guy. Like he'd like to privatize war and just make it all happen. And you know, it's crazy that he's related to Benson. Anyway, you know, I'm like, I wonder where they came up. Cause there's, there is that ethos. They both take crises and just like monetize them. And I don't know who, who designed that, but in their family or like taught them that, but he, um, he is now charging, $6,500 $6,500 a seat to bring a thousand to Africa. Um, let's put the tweet up on, on screen. So I'll read the tweet, uh, quote, tragic, surreal and apocalyptic. Eric Prince is charging $6,500 a seat. A rescue effort to bring 1000 to Africa flies out of Kabul with less than 50 private efforts to help those fleeing Taliban rule are scrambling as it is, as time is running out. Now, first off time is running out. Like whatever. That's a whole other debate to be had. Like, is it really running out? Is it going to be dangerous? Can you, do you really think you're not gonna be able to get out? Like if the Taliban does go into the, the airport. Is it really going to stop you? Are they going to stop you from getting We're on planes? Not sure because they set the terms because we lost the war and people don't seem to quite understand that. Like simple yeah. fact. Uh, yeah. But, no, what I want here, like it's all outrageous. Obviously it's all outrageous, but what I want to know is ha- is who in the actual military, who he's still buddies with, like, let this happen because it can't happen. There's a, a lot of demand to land at that airport. Okay, let's be absolutely clear. Right. And so if Eric Prince is landing one of his crazy, we made up an Air Force, you know, crop duster turned into a drone plane or whatever into there, someone is given permission and is taking up room for something that's more important. And that means he's still able to rely, as he always has, on this network of people who are actually in the military, not just in that next level out of contractors, all this crap. Like he is still has his fingers in the pie and I want it out of there. Joe Biden is the president. That's supposed to be Eric Prince, like tooling around That's with right. anymore. This is not what we signed up for. That's right. And he, I mean, let's just remind folks, like he, he's, he's been known for atrocities, for bombing I mean, what occurred in Iraq? I mean, let's, I don't know if yeah, you can yeah, find yeah. it. We can put it up later. We can put up some video a footage. Um, a ma- literally an actual massacre that he was responsible for. And he had to like rebrand his mercenary tribe like five times as a result because economics. <laughs> um, I mean, we'll put that footage up in the background so people can see what we're talking about. But this man, like, how is this still happening? How is it that, that, that Donald Trump is laughed at when it comes by members of the military and Eric Prince is still welcomed at these dinner parties. 
because the inertia of the military industrial complex is the story of the last hundred years in America. It's, you know, when you're here in Kosovo, they have a name for it because they're openly talk about it. It's called state capture. And it means Mm. when a private company has like taken over a piece of your state, you know, and that's something you worry about. And it's something you run on. You're like, we will reverse state capture. Like we would prefer this not to be a thing. America is a state that has been captured by the military industrial complex. Let's sort of, let's be generous to all of our leading men for a second. And it turns out they are all men. Um, you know, Barack Obama wanted to stop wars. Uh, Donald Trump wanted to stop wars. They both ran on it. You know, uh, Joe Biden now is sort of even forced to try to stop wars. And why is it so hard? Aren't these guys the goddamn commanders in chief? Because they're not. Because there is an inertia in the blob that just pushes this forward. And it's all about contracts, money. And there are millions of people you know, whose livelihood kind of come down in this way. And so you have lots of people making small decisions that don't even seem so bad, but collectively together are making an industry that has become a iron ring around this government. And I would just remind everyone that the seven richest counties in America are not, you know, Manhattan and Los Angeles. They are in Maryland and Virginia in a ring around the uh, Washington, D.C., around the Capitol. And it's the contractors and the military industrial complex. It's that simple. We've given them our money and they don't want to give it back. Exactly. Um, Actually, related to that, I think there is this question about whether or not private mercenaries will be going into Afghanistan eventually. And maybe this is sort of a a flex by Eric Prince to to show that he's equipped to navigate or or not, you know, these these chaotic moments. But, you know, very well, it's like this is the first, unfortunately, the first impulse I had was as soon as we pulled out, it was like, it's fine. We're just going to send a bunch of uh, private contractors there to, to fill the void. And we're going to pay for them. And we're going to have no debate about it because it's just a budgetary item. It's a line item. It's not a. Or when the money starts to not be allocated, then we have different contractors. Like, I don't know if folks are aware, you know, we think about military contractors as being fancy ex-military who get 10 times what a soldier gets to do the same job. And now go to defense installation in America and look who's guarding it. Soldiers? No. Like private security services who are full of people who are making like less than minimum wage and stuff, many of whom are immigrants, many of whom are the very same story you see in other industries where we can pay people to do less and we're not really that worried that this base is going to be stormed or whatever. And maybe we're not that, and maybe it was a way to save money so we can pay our friends more. Uh, so like, let's, let's, let's be clear. Like the government, the government not using soldiers to do the work of soldiers cuts in all directions and is always bad. Always bad. Either you're overpaying someone to commit atrocities or you're underpaying someone to actually keep our fighting men and women safe, which doesn't seem like a good plan either. Right. That's fascinating. Okay. Let's just shift um, focus real quick because uh, Roger Stone, I don't know if you saw this. You know who Roger Stone is, of course, right? Of course. Yes, yes. And of course, so, you watch the movie. The movie is great. Get me right. It's great. Morgan Pachma, our, our friend for the show, uh, directed that. He spent five or six years on it and just hit, I don't want to say jackpot, but like the moment of Roger. I mean, if you came, came up in New York and you knew about New York politics, you knew who Roger Stone was. You've been in the room with him. You've seen him at parties. He's just sort of this nutty figure who's always existed, worked for Nixon, we all know, uh, has a tattoo of Nixon on his back. Uh, Roy Cohn was his... His mentor, Roy Cohn, uh, represented Donald Trump and also was on the committee um, uh, during the McCarthy hearings. He was the lawyer for um, the committee 
the, the yeah. big, not your committee. For the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, for the wrong side. Oh, yeah, let's be clear. For the wrong side. Yeah, but sure but weirdly, I don't think people know this, RFK worked with him, and they did not get along. Roy Cohn and RFK did not, senior RFK, like the Robert yeah. R. F. Kennedy. And then, of course, RFK uh, came, he, he had an awakening post that era. Um, all right, so let's, so, so Roy, uh, Roger Stone is like a dark arts guy. And I love watching where Roger Stone's energy, he just got out of prison. Um, who knows if he's going to go back. I can't keep track of all this stuff, but I love watching where Steve Bannon and Roger Stone go and what fights they're getting into and who are, the, who are yeah, their allies. They come at it from very different places. Yeah. 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 We'll explain that. Let's actually, before we get to this, this piece of news. I mean, look, Roger Stone is sort of flamboyant and dresses in these, you know, clothes. So you think, oh, he's like Bannon wearing like a bunch of popped collars. It doesn't make any sense. But no, Roger Stone is using dark arts for very traditional, top-down conservative politics for rich people, by rich people. If anyone else is along for the ride because they're racist, that's fine. But those people are idiots, you know, and we have them and you're my idiots now and you're voting for me. Uh, Steve Bannon who I think is, and I think they're both actually fairly effective operatives. It's not fair to say either of these guys aren't effective. They've done things. Uh, but Steve Bannon's talent is running to the left, right, of, of people on the left, to being a far-right person who always does genuinely see populist moments. He's a genuine populist. It's why the kind of divorce of him and Donald Trump was probably such a good thing for America, because you could really see uh, how Donald Trump dropped a lot of that talk and a lot of those actions and where there were openings, Democrats leave and still leave for him to creep in on the left is scary. So Steve Bannon is not a Republican ideologue. He is sort of, you know, flirts with the far right and the alt right and extreme things. Um, but Roger Stone, for all him looking like Milo Yiannopoulos or like one of these kind of like guys is not. He's a very top down Nixonian conservative standard stuff. So it's it's so interesting that you bring it up through the context of top down versus populist. And and what what we're seeing on this like fringy right kind of at least even Roger Stone, he's Roger Stone is still kind of fringy because he's not part of the neocon infrastructure. You know, Jeb Bush ain't calling him up. Marco right. Rubio is not going to call him up and Ted Cruz ain't going to call him up. But he operates um, maybe, you know, maybe I, say, Cruz, I can see that phone call being made. He's, you know? he's, he's desperate enough. Yeah. Um, but you know, he doesn't operate in the circles. He's not hanging out with the military industrial complex, no. uh, at all. The Bushes hate him. So with that being said, um, there is this, this, this sort of like this fight for the media space, I think is something that some of us on the left are watching, um, and thinking deeply about, and some of us are just watching and like mocking, but it, it's, in my opinion, it's dangerous. And it's something that Steve Bannon has his paws in. Um, and there's a lot of money being put into these new media platforms. At the same time, Tucker Carlson is echoing and platforming the hosts and the actual platforms, which are making more money. And one of these, and simultaneously is under the guise of we're being censored. The right wing is being censored. We control literally all the media. <laughs> like we're in capital, but we're being censored <laughs> as they're giving a speech with a censor over them. Um, so, so Roger Stone is complaining that Jason Miller, uh, is his has deplatformed him from this this new site this right wing platform called Getter, um, and because his account was suspended last night. 
what is this? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, but I do feel like it's significant for some weird reason, or maybe it's staged to like create another platform. I don't think it's staged. It just shows you that all, like when you're trying to replicate something that's too big to fail, whatever yeah. you're doing with like, you know, Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, these things are too big to fail. You can't like, you can't just do that, right? You need to sort of let a thousand flowers bloom and see which one is going to make it, you know? And so I do think it's sort of a natural and what happens is it's factionalism and we on the left should understand this. So when something's blowing up, just people, you know, cleave along the lines they cleave and yell at each other and, and knock themselves out. Um, I think the fact that these things keep whipping up and dying down so fast is not good. It's bad because it means that they all are going to keep doing this until one does hit it. You'd almost rather there be two or three that are sort of okay enough that they still keep people, the cute, you know, like the crazy conspiracy people, like one thing, you know, and like uh, the standard sort of super racist, like another thing. Uh, and if you're talking about dark arts, you know, I would say that it would behoove somebody to actually create some of these uh, platforms in a, in a way that brings in different kinds of conservatives to different places because you're actually dividing their movement. You know, <laughs> there's no reason why we can't kind of use technological know-how to, to aid in this process a bit. Um, but all these things are going to seem ridiculous and spinning out of control until one hits and does become interesting. And interesting. I think... One of them that will become interesting, especially from some things that you talk about a lot, will be that it will also that it will not just bring in conservative people, but because it's somehow anti-establishment or uses blockchain, or, you know, like it's some, there's some feature about it that is also sort of sexy to kind of libertarian slash right. um, some folks on the left. Then that will be, then that's something that can maybe start to get critical mass. But simultaneously, I mean, if that is the strategy, and there are definitely places that are trying to do that, the left being there can also pull people back in, um, which is, you know, we have to think that way too, is just yeah. can't let them operate in their own little ecosystem. Um, on that note, real quick, before we wrap, uh, Facebook, I, I love tearing down Facebook when we can. And speaking of too big to fail and monopolies, Facebook has come out and said that they're the most transparent platform on the internet, according to yeah. Facebook. <laughs> let's let's just play this clip real quick before we wrap. And I want to get your thoughts. <laughs> I'm already shaking my head sadly. Facebook is, quote, by far the most transparent platform on the internet. That's according to Facebook. Reporting from the New York Times paints a different picture. Facebook paid itself this compliment upon releasing its first quarterly report about the most viewed posts in the U.S. The list showed that the posts with the most reach tended to be innocuous content like recipes and cute animals. But as the Times reveals, Facebook had prepared a similar report for the first three months of the year, except executives never shared it with the public because of concerns that it would look bad for the company. You know, the opposite of transparency. That report showed Facebook's most popular pages and links spread dangerous anti-vaccination misinformation and right-wing conspiracy theories. Okay, so, you know, I don't think we're shocked by any of this. Uh, I no. think... It's, it's, what it does is it's basically, they're just admitting that they know what's going on. Um, I mean, they report every single week. And this is why I, I will never shut up about this until it's fixed. Every single week, Facebook publishes their most popular pages. And 
top, like it's like a rotating thing between Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino and like, you know, some other one that we've never heard of who's like rising up in the ranks. All people who've had massive funding from the right wing, who prop up each other, who are who go on Fox News, do their rotation. Those invited on Dan Bogino's show last week to debate climate change, like that has to have a debate. Um, you know, these are people that are are making the rounds and and Facebook is understands exactly, exactly how its algorithm works. And yet they get away with this still. Um you know, and keep in mind, I just want to add more, more everybody, everybody knows this. The algorithm is designed by white men. And there is, I truly believe, at least in the case of Facebook, because they're conscious of it at this point, that there is a political agenda. And the political agenda is a financial agenda. And those two things can match. But if you, if you cannot, I mean, this is ultimately what differentiates the most, the worst Democrat from a Republican is, I believe in some cases, obviously, if you're an elect, it's different, but you have a little bit of a moral conscience, a little bit. It might be like this much, more, this, this, <laughs> this, this much more, this much more. I mean, or you have to pay lip service to a conscience, which is maybe the same thing in the end. Like, what do yeah. we care what you feel? We care what you do. I, yeah. I would agree with all of that, but let me just jump in on top Go for it. with just, this is another thing where we use squishy words is vocabulary, transparency. What does transparency actually mean? Until we agree on, it's like organic, right? Until you agree on what it means. And I'm not even saying that as a funny metaphor. I mean, that as a one-to-one metaphor, big companies can sell you poison and call it organic and you will happily gobble it down. So there is a bit of that in transparency. Let me take a little back slap at my old boss, Barack Obama, on this. And it's not even necessarily his fault on this, but I can remember we got uh, early on in the administration, uh, and I was filming it in the Oval Office, an award for like being the most transparent uh, thing ever. And as people came in and they were like, you know, we do actually have some issues with like A, B, C, and D, um, but you guys are fine. And Bush was horrible. And like, you know, we're giving you the award. And so got the award, pleased to get the award. Uh, and then that became a mantra, like we're the most transparent administration mm. ever. And it, it wasn't based in nothing at mm. all, but it wasn't based in things that you might hope it was based in, which would be like whistleblower protection on the things like this sort of, you know, it was based in, we released data, yeah. which no one had ever done before, which was actually amazing. And I think it was too bad the reporters weren't kind of more conversant in data because the yeah. good, the bad, and the ugly was actually out there to kind of see, and it could have been really interesting reporting done, but that's not the entire story of what transparency is. And so depending on how you define it, you can literally be the most transparent person in the history of the universe and yet have as much opacity as you need to do whatever it is you need to get done until we agree on what this actually means. Well, part of that also is they're just such a large network. So they could actually technically per hit, whatever view, be more transparent than any other platform on the planet. But you're like, in a sea of, it's like a shark sea and you can't, you know, it's like a dark, I don't know, it's, it's, it's contaminated. (laughs) Cool. You know, that's great. And it's not always made to like increase disinformation or even to like serve conservative masters. Sometimes it's just like, this seemed like a good way to make advertising go better. It seemed like a better way to make videos watch better, but whenever you're trying to like make things better, you don't want people to see you doing that. And so the natural Mm. inclination is, We'll quietly change this algorithm. We'll quietly do this. We'll roll us out, you know, sort of small. And Mm -hmm. these little things don't feel like much. Uh, And it sort of feels like a better experience when they're hidden. I don't want to see the construction, but that's like 
the parts that you want to see the most or the parts that are the most easy to and the parts that feel the most natural when they do it to make opaque. But here's the thing. Now they know. And what are they doing to fix it? And I'm going to guess not a lot. Yeah, they're just issuing reports saying they're really transparent. Look, they're so transparent. We just... Dan Bongino is one of our top, look at the top 10 Facebook pages for the last year have all been right-wing anti-vaxxers. That's how transparent we are. We're sharing that information with you. And the rhubarb, strawberry rhubarb uh, recipes. I'm shocked. I have not had one strawberry rhubarb in the last year, given how popular that that, that recipe is. You'd think it'd be like the new Brussels sprout. Yeah, yeah, totally. Bullshit. I also yeah. didn't see those cat videos. I don't buy it. Oh, the one with the tails? I see, I've seen that a lot. Uh, the uh, I'm a cat person, though, as you know. Um, but but oh, I just lost my thought. What was I going to say? The thing, the thing about Facebook is that it needs to be nationalized. That's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. it is too big to fail because we live in a digital world. There is no longer a public square where you can just put up a classifieds. Every town, every city, every county should make like a public platform where you can have school groups and do simple things. It's not about even crazy share this, that, the other. Most people are still on Facebook because their kids like have an elementary school parents group that they're in. They have some group with their old friends in. It's the groups that keep people in. That's right. And I think you're going to see more and more of this opaqueness sort of trying to trap those groups in, you know, yes. like. Again, not being in control of your own data. When there is an alternative, will you be able to hit one button, give me all the data of this group as the admin so that I can recreate it someplace else? Hell no. Yep. So, I mean, we'll burn that bridge when we get there, but I ain't holding my breath. That's exactly why I'm stuck on Facebook. It's like, how am I going to find all these people? I don't, I don't have like an address book. Like what? Yeah, yeah. No, I get information about like stuff in life that I will not yeah. get anywhere else. Yeah. Like, are my parents slowly losing it? Because of the posts that they're posting. Because <laughs> lately I'm just like, okay. <laughs> All right. I'm just kidding. You need to uh, monitor your parents' online thing like any. I literally do. You need I l- to- yes. This is this is roles reversed right here. This is happening. Um, Arun Chowdhury. Go check out the committee program on Monday yes, at 3 y'all. p.m. Come, come watch. Come watch. And then where do, where do you, where's the Patreon and the fans? Uh, the Patreon is Patreon slash committee program uh, or fans.fm slash committee pro. And you can obviously like and subscribe this channel to help us. It really does because this is our main platform where we bring our global politics to you every week. Globalism. That's what we're doing here. That's what I'm we're doing. Kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in on this Wednesday. Uh, We will see you on Fem Friday. That's this Friday. Same time, same place. Uh, And if you haven't already, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Support your female hosts. We're going to start saying that because I think people really need to understand there aren't many of us and it's really hard to break through, as we all know. Uh, So make sure to like and subscribe and share clips. Join us on social media. Thank you to everybody and stay in solidarity. The Nomi Key Show. 
backlash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Thank <laughs> you.